welcome to another episode of Eureka Nerd Podcast. I'm Will, a successful iguana. And I'm Leah, a tropical bird, but the shouty kind. As you can tell, we've been watching Planet Earth 2, because how can you not? It's the single most gripping drama I've ever seen. Yeah, I don't think we've had an episode yet that hasn't had something to really uh, discuss at work on Monday. People used to go in talking about, oh, did you see the game? Did you see that episode of Downton? Now it's May the Snakes. Okay, but what are Birds of Paradise? What are they? Some kind of exotic fruit, as far as I can tell. I'm not a biologist. You literally are a biologist. I'm exactly a biologist, (laughs) yes. But um, less about that and more about some of the exciting press releases we've had coming our way in the recent weeks. Starting with something, I think, quite... uh, seasonally themed yeah we have got quite a few stories today that are distinctly festive in tone because it's cold out and uh there's huts full of germans selling mulled booze in the high street i mean that's actually not so much of a difference for bristol but we do have a boat full of cider all year round it's not mulled though and it's not delivered by germans Anyway, we're getting off topic. <laughs> Let's start off our wintry selection of stories with some of the sartorial choices that you might be making because going out on some of these frosty, icy roads is its a tricky business to navigate them. And did you know that your winter boots are most likely junk? A uh, team of researchers in unsurprisingly Canada, because who else has got that much of a vested interest in snow, have actually gone to the effort of testing a huge range of winter footwear from proper walking boots through to fashion footwear in order to rate them for safety and for their non-slippiness in adverse weather conditions. The results have been published on ratemytreads.com and it comes from the Winter Lab. Which I think sounds like a superhero. I mean, if you've got a winter lab in Canada, I can only assume that Weapon X is involved at some point. What happens if we make the adamantium cold before we install it in the Wolverine? What if we just want to watch Hugh Jackman walking up and down inside a icy room at a couple of degrees slope to just see if he falls over and slips and slides, like one um, brave volunteer does in a video attached to the press release? So this... It's estimated that more than 20,000 Ontarians visit the emergency room every year due to injuries related to falling on ice and snow. In Toronto, a public health report revealed that 60% of people aged over 60 and 40% of people aged 35 to 59 would avoid leaving the house because of slippery road conditions. So it's good to have a proper rating system for your winter boots to keep the country moving in the cold weather. And the rating system they've chosen is quite charmingly, snowflakes. They've written that the snowflake scale is based on, well, you can get one snowflake for being able to achieve the minimum angle of seven degrees walking uphill. This being a laboratory surface which is gradually tilted as the individual testing the boots is walking up and down it. So the greater the slope you can achieve with that before they fall over, the better. Yes, and you reach two snowflakes for 11 degrees, three snowflakes for 15 degrees, although none of the footwear tested achieved such high rankings. The uh, 98 boots tested, 90% of them failed to achieve even seven degrees and could not be awarded any snowflakes. It makes me really hope that we never get really, really cold weather in Bristol because I think 
there's about three streets in the whole city that are at less than a seven degree incline. I mean, in the summer we did get the slip and slide on Park Street. Yeah, but they did that on purpose. I imagine it'd just be kind of the same thing. Yeah, I mean, you can get around on a sled, but you'd want a, like a ski lift to get up the street. I think they should have one of those anyway, to be honest. They have found that there are some successful technologies in boot designs which did achieve the one snowflake rating, green diamond and arctic grip technologies apparently, which they hope to be moving on with and even coming up with some production models in the next few years. So if you do have to go out into the wilds of Canada and you can find boots that have rated two or three snowflakes, then you know that you are in safe feet. Moving on, on our next tangentially festive story. Do you know what's, do you know what's really Christmassy? Just really, really Christmassy. Getting a bit drunk. Being a bit drunk all day. It's pretty festive. At least in my house. A study conducted by Professor Nu Chu Liang of the University of Illinois has been looking into how alcohol affects the eating habits of lab rats. Because nothing quite says festive like, you know, getting a little bit sozzled. Eating more than you really have room for and then just slumping out in front of even more David Attenborough programming. Except, surprisingly, with especially anecdotal evidence of humans, slightly drunk rats don't eat more. They will eat less while they're slightly drunk. In fact, even getting them more intoxicated than they should be by injecting alcohol directly into their bloodstream resulted in them just self-limiting their diet even more. In fact, losing weight. In fact, they had to inject the alcohol to get the rats drunker than just a bit because it turns out rats are better at self-regulating than most of the human beings I know and they will only drink until they're just slightly tipsy. They won't drink until they're completely rat-assed. Badumtish. Professor Liang did point out that results may slightly have been thrown off by some sort of environmental factors, being that the lab rats in question were eating the exact same boring lab food that they have every single day, whereas drunk humans are often presented with a huge range of food. If you're at a party, there'll be nibbles, there'll be buffet stuff. If you're out on the town, there's probably a fast food joint or seven within five minutes walk of wherever you are. So they are going to be rerunning the experiments with a wider offering of snacks for their rats. But what's to be done once you've gotten yourself suitably cheery and you've aligned your innards with mince pies, mini mince pies, with all this food tucked in your belly, what else do humans being do but go home and sleep? That's We kind of just hibernate it out. It's this food coma thing that people seem to relish in having. I know I do. It's been a very commonly discussed phenomenon, but no one's really done much research into it of, you know, you've had your big Christmas dinner or last week in the US they were having their big Thanksgiving dinners and then you sit down and an hour later just dozing quietly and someone points across the room and goes ah that's the trip to fan then or is it apparently not quite according to new research from the Scripps Institute in Florida there Professor William Jar and his research team have been using fruit fly models to document sleep metabolism interactions, which is to say how tired you get when you're hungry, uh, recording in something called the Activity Recording Cafe, which I feel is just a bit on the nose with terminology, 
But, um, but it, it does describe exactly what it is. It's a box with food in it. You put some of your experimental fruit flies in. Let them have a snack. Let them have a drink. Let them, you know, socialize a little bit. Watch how much activity they're doing. And it turns out that specific food components, which is to say salt primarily and a little bit of protein, affected the amount of sleep that the flies then had, whereas sugar had no effect. Well, they found that generally having eaten the meal the flies would reduce their activity, have a nap, and that this response was more marked when they'd had a salt and protein-rich meal. And it is thought that this has parallels in humans, with apparently salt consumption known to induce sleep in mammals. And Jar comments that using an animal model, we've learned there is something to the food coma effect, and we can now start to study the direct relationship between food and sleep in earnest. Which means that he's got a job many more years looking at sleepy flies. And this is interesting, the uh, links that they've found. I think a lot of people have assumed, particularly because the food coma was, as an anecdotal thing, is most often reported after your festive Christmas or Thanksgiving meal, then it might be to do with the amino acid tryptophan, which turkey is very rich in, which sweet potatoes are very rich in, which lots of cheeses are quite rich in, which I don't know about the other side of the pond but cheese is a big feature in christmas for a lot of people in the uk and that it was the particular fact of those foods as much as it being a big meal that was making you dozy it may or may not be there might be a link but also just eating might make you take a nap we've got just a few more festive stories to talk about and what's more festive than the big man himself jolly old saint nick Père noel man by million names all over the world, giver of gifts and face of the holidays. But who are we to say that this man exists? Or doesn't exist? Is he just the marketing fantasy? Was he made up by Coca-Cola in the 30s? Should parents lie to children about Santa? This study published in The Lancet Psychiatry suggests we maybe shouldn't. I mean, that's about it, really. Maybe don't lie to your children. The idea being that if you've lied about this for years, how can your child trust you again? And it is one of those first great truths or untruths that you tell your child. Some kids are brought up with no Santa but a Christmas. Some get a very strict adherence to the uh, biblical Christmas where it's much more about the birth of a saviour. Some people have completely different holidays entirely and they celebrate those in their own ways, but... Santa not being real is sort of a watershed moment in a child's development. Yeah, and it's interesting to, you know, like, I I don't think it did me any harm, but I do know people who are quite resentful about this lie. And the author's comment. If parents are capable of lying about something so special and magical, can they be relied upon to continue as guardians of wisdom and truth? All children will eventually find out that they've been lied to consistently for years, and this might make them wonder what other lies they've been told. And I feel like at this point we're edging up on every philosophy A-level ever. But I would like just to bring in a quick comment that you might have found from our Twitter feeds earlier of Toddlers may not know when you are telling the truth, say Singapore and US experts. And I feel like this is related quite a lot. That kids are dumb and don't exploit that for your own Santa benefits. Can we exploit it for our own humour benefits, though? I mean, it's very easy to lie to children. They haven't figured out a lot of stuff yet. There is a closing comment at the end of this press release that 
The persistence of fandom in stories like Harry Potter, Star Wars, and Doctor Who well into adulthood demonstrates a desire to briefly re-enter childhood, and many people may yearn for a time when imagination was accepted and encouraged, which may not be the case in the rest of their adult lives. Might it be the case that the harshness of real life requires the creation of something better, something to believe in, something to hope for in the future or to return to in a long-lost childhood a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away? There is a suggestion in the article that the urge to tell kids about Father Christmas has slightly selfish motivations and it's trying to bring the magic back into your own life. I think comparing enjoying fun movies and books to that is... um, If you only have that one season of magic and fun in your life with the kids anyway, then there's something else to address there. Well, time for some more harsh truths. And this time... We're looking at a harsh truth, which, I mean, we knew, but the ongoing implications of climate change are still being investigated and considered. Some people dismiss them outright, some people think it's a question of scale, but it seems to be, according to this research from Aarhus University, that climate model predictions are telling a fairly consistent story. These are looking at predictions that demonstrate that for one degree centigrade of global temperature increases, the global wheat production, and wheat is, you know, a core food substance, a staple of diets all over the world, will decline by an average of 5.7%. In part, obviously, this is because wheat is one of those major, major food crops. There's a lot of monoculture. There aren't very many varieties of wheat being grown because we've bred and bred and bred for a few strains that we really, really like and left it at that. Those strains have been developed for particular environmental conditions which are now changing. So this is a comparison of three what they describe as very different climate models. And if you're finding an agreement out of three models based out of different measurements that all find the same answer, that having this correlation between increase in temperature and decrease in wheat yield based out of temperature, precipitation, carbon dioxide levels, then what we're left with is a prediction of crop yield, which even today seems to be not quite meeting the food demand, or at least the accessibility to that demand in many countries. And unsurprisingly, as with many predictions of climate change, it's hotter regions of the earth that will suffer the most, and disproportionately so with China, India, the USA and France experiencing similar declines in yields based on these models and Russia faring considerably better. When it comes to climate change, better is a... Yeah, I mean, their wheat yields might stay relatively strong, but millions of people might be gassed to death by methane being released from melting permafrost, so... Shall we perhaps move on to something a little more cheery? Like another good, kind, festive act is the act of charity, the season of giving. While it's nice, in some cases you can do a whole lot better than just occasionally donating something. This is an article looking at vaccine pricing by pharmaceutical companies. And this follows the Médecins Sans Frontières refusing a million doses of a pneumonia vaccine based on their idea that it should just be more fairly priced, that there shouldn't be an obstacle to access from big pharma companies so they could buy the medicine outright rather than having to rely on these generous donations. Yeah, they're prioritising 
pushing for those prices to be dropped over just taking what they can get. It's an editorial published in the British Medical Journal looking at various instances of big pharmaceuticals companies like uh, Pfizer and GlaxoSmithKline who will declare that they're giving a, a special price to humanitarian organisations for their vaccines or straight out donating them. Which does get a lot of back-patting and glad-handing of, oh, corporate social responsibility, that, oh, they're doing, you know, the right thing in this fantastic instance. But it seems that, that really they could afford to drop the prices across the board to so much lower than they are already. And really, most of the reason they don't is that unlike with other medications, there aren't generic versions of vaccines to force them to drop prices. People fight long and hard to not make generic versions available, because once there is even a competitor on the market, then profit margins for that medication are suddenly much, much lower. And for the business of saving people's lives, which is sort of an investment, there seems to be a lot of very short-sighted attitudes towards income with pharmaceutical bioscience companies who would rather just make a killing, if you pardon the term, in the short run, and then meet that out with another iteration and another iteration, slight spins on the same thing, kind of like the Apple iPhone of medication, you know, a different twist on it, they might throw an antacid in there as well, but it's going to be the same thing that you had last year, but for another $100 a dose. And the trouble with, I think, the whole big pharma thing is that we need them because you can't develop medications and vaccines without their resources but they hold us hostage with their pricing strategies and it is expensive to develop drugs it does take a very very long time but you know who wants to not be ill everyone and there are some repurposed drugs which i think are important to mention Things like aspirin and propanolol, things that cost pennies to make, that even cost pennies to buy, really, are fantastic in cancer control, are good for blood pressure, hypertension. That, you know, people are kind of at the stage of development where they think they should just add it to the water, frankly. And as soon as there's someone who is willing to go through the paperwork to get these drugs more properly repurposed, following lots of research about them, then they become much easier to produce and to prescribe for different indications but with something as proprietary as a pneumonia vaccine there's only so much that can be done but they're not doing it anyway let's bring up the mood with a couple of these and talk about ways to improve your day-to-day well-being you know what sort of a thing will just make you feel good and continue to make you feel good. According to new research from the University of Otago in New Zealand, doing creative activities will make you feel better about life, about the things you create, about everything. In Science Today, art. This is a positive one. The dichotomy, the the art-science dichotomy is bullshit. It's a nonsense. Well, for those of you listening to this who might participate in the uh, growing trend of colouring in books, the important thing is that you engage in this upward spiral of well-being and creativity. This is from a survey of 658 university students 
who were asked to keep a daily diary of their experiences and emotions over 13 days. And found that those who were being more creative, doing even short exercises like knitting, crochet, new recipes with cooking, musical performance, graphic and digital design. I'm just going to stop you there because you've just suggested that knitting and crochet might be a short exercise, which given the number of hours you've spent sat next to me on the sofa knitting, you should know better. Well, you get the idea. And it turns out that, yeah, there's an association, a positive correlation of engaging in creative behaviours and emotional well-being. So... Go doodle something, go colour something in, go get your hands into a big pile of balls of wool. Grab life by the balls of wool. That is my philosophy in life. You know who'd be really good at grabbing life by the balls of wool? An animal with the strongest grip strength. This is a creature. The biggest of its kind. Also the most powerful of its kind. A true terror from the depths. The only thing that matches it for grip strength is an alligator. What could this fearsome predator be? Who would dare fall into its claws? It's a coconut crab. It's a crab. It looks a bit like a coconut. I thought it floated on coconuts was the thing. They're also kind of vaguely coconut shaped and sized. A little bit in colour too. But uh, yeah, they are big goddamn crabs. They can weigh as much as 28 kilograms. They're about the size of a bin, end to end. And, um, a bin? Yeah, I'll, I'll put a picture in the associated links of a coconut crab crawling out of someone's bin. It's, anyway, these very large crabs, these surprisingly large crabs, have mighty claws. That's a quote. Researchers measured this with a collection of 29 wild coconut crabs from Okinawa, having established that the bigger the crab, the bigger the pinch. They projected, based on the, the maximum known weight of a coconut crab, that the strongest of them could generate a pinching force up to 3,300 newtons. That's 3,300 apples. And nature has tried many times to make a crab. There are so many kinds of crab out there in the world. I recommend you just open up the Wikipedia page for crab one day and have a look at all of the different crabs that there are. He did this once and he's been talking about it ever since. There are so many crabs. And when I say ever since, I mean for about the last two years. So many crabs. Not here, obviously. You know what else is out there in the world? Racial prejudice. Let's bring that right back down. Let's bring it right back. So if you've been paying attention to the news, social media, the the world in general, you are probably aware that it pretty much sucks to be black in America. We wish it wasn't so, but... Uh, I, like, sorry again for everything. It's It's gone back and forth a little bit over the years. There have been periods when it seems like it's it's getting a lot better... Um, but, you know, it's been in the news a lot lately. And here's, a, here's another little piece of evidence to add to that if you've got any racist friends who want to deny how bad it is. That the difference between black and white earnings has returned to 1950 levels. 
we're not going to harp on about this too much because we're both white. We don't really have any experiential basis for talking about this. But the paper itself is behind a paywall, so we're not going to give you the exact numbers and figures here. But they do detail in the abstract that the bottom end of the economic ladder has just completely collapsed and that has disproportionately affected black men. The earnings of a median white man and a median black man are as far apart as they were in the 1950s. Uh, This, in spite of the fact that the average African-American man now, on account of those years of progress has vastly more education than his 1950s equivalent. But still lives in a society where it's more likely for a young white man without a high school diploma, which is how they do it in America, to own a house than a black college graduate. So yeah, racism. That's still a thing. Sorry. In more positive news... Researchers at the University of Pittsburgh had some success regrowing heart tissue by injecting it with material from zebrafish cells. Now this does sound a bit like a weird science article, that they've looked at damaged heart tissue in mice and injected it with the scaffolding of zebrafish. And zebrafish are especially useful for doing genetic modelling because they have a pretty quick turnover generation to generation and you can see their embryos developing in a kind of translucent way so you can see a lot of the major organ effects they've taken uh, the cardiac myocytes the cells that form heart muscles and put them in mice who've had stress damage to their heart and the hearts have regenerated recuperated quite well even this is more effective when they've taken the myocytes from a heart that's already healing presumably because they're already activated and they have got some promising results um, on human heart tissue in laboratory conditions as opposed to inside a human heart you need all kinds of ethical clearance for that but they have found that the extracellular matrices the aforementioned scaffolding that the heart tissue then grows on seems to have really low organ donor rejection that you might experience with, I mean, even donations within a species, let alone from fish to mouse or fish to person. Yeah, they've made a point of extracting the extracellular matrices in a way that leaves them, being as they're just kind of protein structures, in a way that means they haven't got any of the sort of cell surface proteins which would cause rejection in a typical organ transplant. So if last Christmas you did give your heart away, you might have a new one by next Christmas. From a fish. Which leaves us with just one last paper to discuss. Something especially close to my heart. Mosh pits. This is an article about physicists trying to apply their scientific background to social situations. Which is tricky because scientists and social situations tend to naturally separate like oil and water there's some bonus science for you but these physicists have been looking at the dynamics of crowds and trying to spot where trouble might occur this is useful for trying to evaluate mass gatherings uh, if there's any riots protests 
marches, and this could be risks for people that the people are marching or protesting against, or there could be risks within the crowd if you reach a certain crush point. And what better way to find that than a dense shoulder-to-shoulder crowd like a mosh pit? I like how the description in the press release um, puts dance in inverted commas. I think that's accurate. That seems fair, really. So, um, yeah, pogoing doesn't count, moshing doesn't count, headbanging doesn't count as dancing, apparently. I remember one evening at a spine shank gig, I just spent 40 minutes with a dude punching me in the back. So, I'm going to quote here from the press release with Dr. Silverberg. He says that we were staring at the concert data when we realised there were direct similarities with rallies, protests, and Black Friday sales events. The more we dug, the richer the physics became, and pretty soon we found ideas from material science and field theory could be directly applied to human crowds in extreme situations. And I think it's a bit late for us to help out with the Black Friday sales rush at the moment. It is for this year. But it might be that next year when you go barging into a Walmart to try and get yourself the biggest telly for the smallest price, there might be a physicist sat upstairs watching the CCTV so that fights can be broken up before someone gets hurt. With the help So that's all we've got time for this week, but make sure you join us again next time on Eureka Nerd, where we might be answering questions such as, are there any health benefits to drinking alkaline water? Not so much. And the terrifying future of an artificial intelligence predicting the outcome of human rights trials. But all that will have to wait until next time. If you have any questions or comments, you can find us on Facebook as Eureka Nerd. You can find us on Twitter at Eureka Nerdcast as well, or send any emails to Eureka Nerdcast at gmail.com. That's Eureka Nerdcast at gmail.com. So for now, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Goodbye. Just not um, you know, one of those standard size comparisons. You know, you're like, oh, this prehistoric mammal was the size of a small car, and uh, this this growth we've removed from your kidney is the size of a walnut. You don't have the size of a bin. It's the size of three watermelons stacked on top of each other, maybe two across. It's like a watermelon domino. Is that any better for you? <laughs> No. <laughs> right, measure it with it, like like give me a kind of a, a sense with your hands and I'll I mean bin sized. Imagine a bin it's <laughs> like think of a bin about that big. You know Do it with do it with your hands, do it with your hands, like kind of like table height. Okay, so it's it's the size of a large dog. But it's not well, I mean it's a, like that's end to end. It's about the size of a small dog. Imagine a a small dog stood okay, on its so back it's legs. Okay, so it's about as tall as a small dog, but longer. It's about as tall as a small dog is if the tall dog, if the small dog stood up as tall as it could. <laughs> but it, it doesn't stretch itself out very much, is the thing. So it's like a, it's like a, if you got a schnauzer and put it in a can crusher. <laughs> Don't put schnauzers in can crushers. Oh Jesus Christ! It's okay. It's got a really hard, tough shell. An armored schnauzer in a can crusher, and you got yourself a coconut crap. Like, chuck some alligator bits in there as well. <laughs>
I feel like I should apologize for this vast and horrifying tangent. It's been a long week. We're very tired. I could go on and on. <laughs> I think maybe you shouldn't. <laughs>